Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, repeat fan favorite, backed by popular demand, Sheil Manat of Better Tomorrow Ventures, and uh, newcomer, but just as sought after, uh, Janie Shah of, uh, of Accomplice. Janie and Sheil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. So, uh, uh, Janie, let's start with you. The, the inspiration for this podcast was you uh, recently written a couple tweet storms uh, about uh, a lot of activity happening in fintech, uh, M&A, uh, financings, uh, public markets. Uh, why don't you sort of unpack what's uh, what's most interesting to you right now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I can speak a little bit to what we're seeing in the public markets right now and what we have seen over the last few years. You know, over the, uh, over the years, we, whether it's war or sort of economic concerns, there have been many sort of drawdowns, but markets have been at an all-time high before before COVID, right? The NASDAQ hit. I, I don't I don't exactly remember. It was like 9,800 points around mid-Feb. If you look at like historical performance since, you know, the 80s, the NASDAQ has doubled many times over. Um, so for those of us who are sort of earlier on in our investing careers, I think it's important to be a student and know a little bit about history, you know, because in our roles, we help inform big decisions about the future. Um, so I really do think we need to know a thing or two about, you know, about the past. You know, one thing I found really interesting over the last few years is fintech as a sector has really traded at premium valuations, even compared to, to SaaS businesses. Um, I remember seeing um, a, an analysis done by some bankers uh, end of the year last year when they pulled pull together how the FANG companies had performed in 2018 and 19. And uh, on average, fintechs like Square, PayPal, Adyen, and other big public companies traded at like, you know, double the revenue multiples uh, to sort of uh, more uh, to the fans. Um, so there's always been sort of a, a large amount of optimism around the sector. And I think particularly yeah. over the last couple of years, there's been a series of mergers that's driven optimism in some of these fintechs' performance. And I think another factor, um, you know, interest rates have been kind of at an all-time high as well over the last couple of years. And now as the Fed cuts interest rates, I think it makes lending a lot less profitable. You know, so um, hopefully once we're sort of recovering from uh, this downturn, it boosts a little bit of, it boosts economic growth and, and consumer spending comes back up. Again, making sort of the financial pipes and the infrastructure attractive assets to invest in. Yeah, it makes sense. And then we've had this crazy, like just in the past four or five months, we've had so much activity. We've had like, uh, obviously, Plaid got acquired 5.3 billion. Credit Karma got acquired by Intuit for 7.1 billion. Um, just uh, this week, we found out Galileo got acquired by SoFi. So like fintechs are acquiring other fintechs. Um, in this case, a new fintech acquired an old fintech. 
we had Radius Bank getting acquired by Lending Club, kind of a crazy, like a fintech company actually acquiring a bank. We had the Bill.com IPO went super well. We had an insurance space. We had Assurance IQ got acquired by Prudential. These are all, almost all like multi-billion dollar outcomes and all in the past several months. And there were rumors of others being in the works too. So this has been like a, an insane time um, to be a fintech investor. Uh, just like the amount of people reaching out to me who are not, who are generalist investors saying like, what's happening in fintech now has really gone up. I think all these acquisitions has, have, have led to it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, Shri, what's your hypothesis for why these deals have been so crazy expensive? Um, it, it, it almost feels like, like these big acquirers don't really get penalized for pursuing large acquisitions, even when they're so richly priced. You know, in fact, yes, they're using I mean, M&A to meet ambitious sort of growth, publicly stated growth targets, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the price will have to decline. I mean, most of these were done in, in stock, right? So, or, yeah. or majority in stock or, or equivalent. And mostly by public companies, you had Visa, Intuit, credit, like Visa, Intuit, Lending Club, are all public companies. And then the interesting one is like this week, SoFi acquiring Galileo because that's in basically an all stock deal. And it's based on the stock of SoFi at the last round. So it's like, where would you value SoFi today? And then what does that imply about the valuation of Galileo? It's kind of interesting. But I think it's because to answer your question, like why have the, the dollar amount's been so high? It's because like multiples were at an all-time high. So it just, you know, it all makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, if this does end up looking like a sort of protracted recession, we're going to see fewer and fewer sort of cash deals. It's going to be stock. You know, people don't yeah. have that much cash on their balance sheets. We'll probably be seeing a lot less private to private deals as well. Uh, unicorns just are not going to have that much cash to spend on acquisitions, you know, they're going to need to conserve as well, right? And focus on OPEX um, and the core business. So um, it's going to be interesting. I feel like we're going to see a lot more private equity uh, deals getting done. Strategics will get active and remains to be seen whether the big tech companies like Apple, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. I know they have some sort of a big uh, M&A freeze. Most of them do at least right now. Yeah. So that, that, that hopefully that changes, but you know, it, it, these next 18 to 24 months are going to be super interesting, especially as we, a lot of businesses like, you know, Yelp, for example, that has had a lot of activist pressure. Yeah. Um, we're going to see some interesting sort of risk adjusted opportunities, I think, coming out of this market. Yeah, for sure. It'll be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. I do think that the companies you mentioned, like Apple, Amazon, Facebook, I think certainly they have been really active in fintech. I mean, the Apple card that they did in partnership with Goldman is a huge success already. And I think Facebook and uh, Amazon have both done a lot of stuff in payments in India. It'll be really interesting to see where that all goes and if, if they do that kind of stuff in the US. So like in India, peer-to-peer payments, there's a government, tech, government released this UPI, Universal Payments Interface, that a lot of third parties are using and like, you can pay each other peer to peer, like Venmo, in Amazon, in WhatsApp, all these other things. Yeah, I'm I'm super pumped to get your perspective on the Indian markets. I I, I went home of the over the holidays. I you know I uh, some people might know I grew up in 
in Bombay and I was just completely blown away by the level of change and innovation happening in both Bombay and Bangalore. Even compared to like 12 months ago, I was just, you know, the Indian market is so fascinating and we need to know about yeah. that. Too. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's funny. I like, it feels like things boom and bust more in India. Like in 2015, there was this crazy boom, all this money went in and then like not a whole lot of stuff panned out from that actually. And like most of the Indian firms, BC funds didn't do that well at that era. Uh, and then there's like another local maximum that seems to be now, but who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like a few sort of exogenous factors have changed in the market. A couple of years ago, demonetization kicked in just yeah. as mobile wallets were sort of accelerating. So there's been this pretty f- funny, interesting dynamic where India seems to have completely leapfrogged cards and plastic. And they've gone from a cash-based yeah. economy to completely digital in a couple of years, right? Demonetization happened. I think also the Modi government, the administration in general has been, like the regulatory environment is very positive for uh, for fintech and e-commerce companies in India. Yeah. Um, and the government has been doing a lot, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it's going to be super interesting to see what happens through this cycle and especially post-COVID. So one one question on that, is so visa has been just an amazing stock you know it demutualized and went public what like a decade ago a little over a decade ago has you know at peak was like 15x during that time these are rough numbers don't don't hold me to them and and you know became a 400 plus billion dollar company and it's they have these really strong network effects, mm. right? Like from the merchant side and the consumer side. And then you have countries like India, China, and parts of Africa that and and Latam that don't have strong card penetration. And I wonder if they ever will because it's a network effects business. And like if this other form of electronic payment takes off in your smartphone, maybe you'll never need the card networks. Yeah, my bet is you probably never need them. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, you probably know this, Visa and MasterCard are also capped in India. The amounts that merchant have, you know, the merchants yeah. in the US, the traditional merchant pays whatever, 2%, 2.5, 2.9%, the card networks. It's government mandated that you the card networks cannot charge the merchants more than 1%. So frankly, payments is not a big business in India, which is why all these payments companies now have to do lending and have to build these other solutions that they can actually monetize on because you can't really charge on core payments anymore, you know, and that's just by government mandate, you know. So, um, yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting to see. I feel like this is why, um, you know, the Visa Plaid acquisition uh, is so interesting, right? Like Plaid doesn't actually further... Uh, Visa's goals around its core product, which is credit cards, right? Like if anything, Plaid enables digital payments, right? Which is something that Visa really needs to, um, Visa, MasterCard, all the card companies need to have uh, better penetration in. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. India, in, uh, India places in Africa definitely, they stand out as unique ecosystems where some of these behemoths just won't be able to do business the same way. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And then, I guess the other like sort of side note on that same topic is 
like with when India made this UPI easy, it also made it free. And so then like the startup that was doing super well, Paytm, all of a sudden, all that mattered was distribution. So like Paytm had distribution, had network effects for a while, but then the government made this like free option of UPI. And then what really matters is distribution. So like if that happens, then the value accrues to the biggest companies. And that's where like Google, Facebook, and Amazon have been winning. I wonder how much like that'll happen in the US and other markets too. Like if I'm starting a new, I haven't invested in any like credit card companies, but you know, the Apple card is a, is a very good product. And I I'd be scared if I was invested in any credit card companies targeting a similar consumer demographic. Yeah, yeah. So two points sort of come to mind when you talk about distribution and how things in Asia are just going to function fundamentally differently. I think there's a big difference between what we're seeing in Asia and what's happening in the US, right? Like a lot of the innovation in Asia is happening simultaneously. So like in the States, these things have happened in phases, right? The digital payments like revolution began in the late 90s with PayPal, you know, e-commerce came after that. Uh, ride-sharing, gig economy, all of that stuff came more recently. And I think it's super fascinating to compare that progression to what's happening in Asia today, where it almost feels like a lot of these different industries are changing and advancing super, super rapidly, and it's all happening simultaneously, right? So these network effects are not just within within payments exclusively, but you know, within payments meets ride-sharing, meets digital wallets, meets something else, right? Like think about like, uh, I don't know, WeChat, Grab, Gojek, and some of these other companies. The payment stuff really benefited from the velocity and scale of the transportation industry totally. in these cases, right? Like DD needed a payments partner, so they partnered with like WeChat. Uber yep. picked up Paytm, and Paytm was making like no margin back then until Uber sort of anointed them partner. And, uh, you know, and and that completely uh, helped them take off and gave them massive distribution. Uh, You know, I remember uh, an old colleague of mine from PayPal was running Grab's payment business. And he said that they launched a a rewards program. And in six weeks, they had like close to 50 million users who were using that rewards product. And, And think about it, like people use these ride-sharing apps, like, you know, 140, 150 transactions a month sometimes, these almost look like debit card transactions, you know, yeah. where it's happening so frequently and they're all benefiting and feeding off of each other's, the, the velocity, you know? So, I don't know, it, it, you, the, the point you made earlier definitely reminded me how, um, yeah, you're right. Like, I think distribution and, and, and scale is going to play such a big, such a big role. And, and to your point about the big tech companies, um, you know, I, I think they will pose a big challenge to legacy financial services companies and to fintechs. You know, when you think about companies like Chime, Monzo, Revolut, they have like a few million users each, right? Like, but yep. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and even Uber, they have billions of users, right? And the number one challenge for most consumer fintechs is how do they acquire customers efficient, uh, if efficiently, but also sustainably over a long period of time. And Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon don't have that problem. You know, they've, they've already earned our trust. They know our wallets. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so much of, of finance 
is building trust and like it's it's like once you've built trust you can add on other products totally yeah jane w- one thing you're really excited about right, about right now is challenger banks what excites you about them in what capacity are you excited we're also see, we're seeing a bunch of sort of global challenger banks for different regions how do you sort of think it it plays out or wh- wh- where do you uh where do you net out there yeah that's a great question i feel like challenger banks have been such a huge theme in fintech for the last you know 18 to 24 months they've been like all the rage consumer facing challenger banks business focused banks there's just been so much activity in the uh, you know in that sort of uh, sector you know i was reading somewhere that last year close to like 35 companies raised money like venture money and they call themselves challenger banks globally you know you know i i i think they're interesting you know a lot of our legacy financial institutions i bank with bank of america i've been a customer for over 10 years from you know the when i first moved to the us for college um and i feel like i don't get shit for being such a loyal bank of america customer you know i bank with them for so long you know in fact the customer service is just mediocre you know it's it's nothing so nothing about the product really excites me and i think this is where challenger banks have really sort of wedged their way in into the consumer psyche i feel like a lot of them have unbundled specific use cases right like sofi does student loan refinancing robinhood is commission free trading transferwise as international money transfers you know a firm is buy now pay later so they're not trying to be everything to everyone like these old legacy financial services like institutions are you know and a lot of them also meet consumers where they are right now so they all mobile first chime monzo n26 revolut there, there's no brick and mortar strategy to most of them i think the interesting thing though for challenger banks is most of these companies are built on interchange based models whereas a lot of legacy most legacy banks are built on le- lending based products so if you look at like jp morgan chase's financials you will see that 70% of their of their revenue on the uh, the consumer banking segment is categorized as like uh, you know net interest income which is effectively the interest they make on the loans that they originate but on the other hand most neo banks make majority of their of their income via like debit interchange revenue and the net interest income piece on actual loans is a much smaller uh, sort of portion of the pie So I think you know my my personal opinion on a lot of them is you know I, I my personal opinion on just debit interchange models these things are really really hard to sustain long term and be a standalone company you can have a couple of them that might stand out that might be operationally just excellent like Chime has gotten phenomenal scale you know with a debit interchange first product you know but there won't be very many of them and I think long term I also um my concern around those businesses are you know what's the outcome you know i think they can probably go public but it, you know it's hard to imagine a world in which a lot of people want to acquire them you know for several reasons they're regulated a lot of the large financial institutions are regulated uh, you know you probably heard of the durban amendment and um you know a lot of these interchange models break down if they have over 10 billion dollars under management you know assets under management so Yeah, I just uh the interchange stuff gives me pause, but I do think that they play an important role in consumer behavior today just because legacy banks haven't done anything for us, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think what that's right. You, yeah, I feel the same way. Like, I don't know. Like you said, they can't be acquired because 80% of the revenue would go away because um, it's interchange-based or, or, or yeah. Uh, and then for some of the, the business-focused ones, some of them rely actually quite a bit on on interest income, which also has gone away now. So a lot of the challenger banks are going to, are going to find it challenging in this uh, in this new environment. So I haven't been hugely excited about them. Uh, I actually, I think like two years ago, I felt like I was seeing a new one every week after what was like a very similar demographic. And then now a lot of those guys are up for sale. And what I'm finding is the folks that are interested in acquiring them are all folks who have distribution in something else. So mm. for example, in in fintech, a lot of these other traditional like consumer-focused fintech companies either started with savings, advice, or, or advice lending or investments. So, like you mentioned, Robinhood. I'd say, aside from them, there's like Bridget, Digit, Dave, Wealthfront, Betterment, Stash, Acorns, Albert. Yeah, those are some that started in one of those categories, and then they quickly, or not quickly, like over in a few years, they like moved into some other categories. And now most of them are in all of the categories and they're starting to butt up against each other. So yeah, like, the horizontal expansion has been a massive theme, right? Yeah. And, and it makes sense. Like that's what banking is like ba- banking. Typically your cost to acquire a customer, like you don't make money if they only have one product, you make money like when they sign up for the second product, it's all about cross selling. And so these companies that only had one product, it was hard, hard to make the math work the same as traditional banking. And so you have to add in more and more products and charge more. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. We uh, we, we touched on India a, a, a bit, but is Janie, that's, that's an area where you've, you've gone really deep. So I'm curious if you can unpack more uh, wh- why that's so exciting to you. What do you hope to, to, to do there or what's exciting there and, and maybe more on Asia more broadly? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's personally exciting to me because, you know, I grew up there. And, you know, I just, uh, it's exciting to see sort of the, the, the change of pace happening in India and the level of access people now have as everyone um, moves over to a smartphone. Um, you know, I think data has gotten incredibly cheap. Uh, and in India, this massive influx of cheaper phones from, you know, Xiaomi, Huawei, and some of these other com- Chinese companies in the Indian market. It's been uh, over the last maybe 12 to 18 months, um, I think there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of activity within fintech and payments. Um, also a lot in, you know, content, so um, more consumer-facing stuff. There's a little bit less in B2B and health, even, um, even more so in sort of deeper tech robotics and stuff like that. But it's understandable because given the sheer scale of the market, just how large it is, uh, how populous it is, um, there's so much low-hanging fruit because there's been so little automation in the last few decades that, you know, there's a lot that you can build massive companies still in e-commerce and fintech and insurance and food delivery. Um, and that, that's kind of what's happened in, in the last three or four years. Um, For those of you guys you know, who don't know, like the, the massive change that you're talking about with, with uh, data, this company launched just a few years ago called Reliance Geo. And when they launched, they gave everyone free unlimited, super fast broadband, uh, yeah. like on your phone for free for six months. 
just to like win the market. And now I think their latest plan is it's like 200 rupees, which is less than three bucks for a month of blazing fast internet. You get 1.5 gigabytes a day. And now like everybody's like, people are using them. My, my mom's in India and she's like running out of the 1.5 gigabytes a day. She uses more data than I do because they're all like video chatting, showing videos all the time. But that it completely changed how people, like if you give something, give them broadband that cheaply, it actually changes how they how they function. I mean, someone's going to make like an HBO or Showtime show about this. Like they, they yeah. have to, and the story behind it is so good. Um, India's wealthiest man, it's this guy named Mukesh Ambani. He's almost like the Bezos of India. Um, his his sort of cash cow core business over the years has been like petrochemicals, oil and gas, these old school industries. And he had a pretty big retail business as well. He took a huge, huge risk, uh, you know, uh, took on a ton of debt. I think he's like, he's pretty highly levered on the geo side. And yeah. he invested like $16 billion to set up Reliance Geo and gave it away for free. And the bet was if everyone in the country starts using the super fast broadband, eventually he's going to see a lot of tailwinds for his retail business, right? Like the retail business begins to then look like Amazon because he controls, you know, he controls your internet. He's selling you smartphones. They're producing content. So you're watching Reliance Geo TV and TV shows on your Reliance Geo phone while using that broadband. It's just, it's a phenomenal story. It's, it, it's yeah. wild. And so um, it launched in 2016 and today is the second largest, um, has the, the second most number of subscribers in the world after China Mobile, which is like owned by like the government of China. 350 million people are using it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pro- probably Insane. more today. Yeah. Insane. It, it's interesting. There's, I think there's also been other sort of bigger secular trends, you know, like I think given the immigration situation here in the States, a lot of the smartest Indians aren't trying to get the H-1B visas and trying to come here or stay here after college. Indians are going back home and building for India, you know? Um, we're also saying, I mean, Sheil, you probably know a ton about this too, like US companies that have tried to operate in India, whether it's Stripe, there's like a lot of data, data localization issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it's almost better to be a homegrown company. It's easier to do business there. Yeah, for sure. Let's uh let's talk a bit about commerce and 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 payments. Uh, so there was a lot of noise around PayPal acquiring Honey uh, the other month. Uh, what does that mean for uh, SMBs and enterprise? Maybe Janie, you could uh, take the first stab in terms of big trends we're seeing there. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. It, Honey being acquired for four billion was really really big news in in fintech world. Uh, a lot of people, uh, myself included, tweeted about it. Um, you know, I think we've seen. A lot of the payment companies, um, uh, you know, U.S., European, whatever, LATAM, everyone's trying to be more and more full stack, you know, like I think they're trying to do payments processing, uh, merchant lending, consumer financing, but they're also doing sort of, uh, they're doing other stuff, right? They're doing fulfillment, business management, you know, CRM stuff, point of sale. You know, I think a lot of payments and fintech companies are becoming more and more full stack in order to better support SMBs or the enterprises and enterprise customers that they they have on their platforms. And I think a lot of cloud platforms are offering more small business focused solutions as well, whether it's Amazon, Google, Salesforce, you know, 
Um, there's been a lot of M and A in the space, and um, I think I think sort of when I think about this trend, I think is you know I think of Square primarily. I think they've shown the potential of um, how you can grow from having one product serving SMBs to having this full suite and in enabling commerce end to end. Shil, how do you think about it? Yeah, I. It's funny because like I actually don't I don't think about pay, uh, Honey as a fintech company at all. Yeah, I mean, think of it as like commerce. It's a couponing thing, right? Like, yeah. I honestly did not get the acquisition, uh, but I also like. It's one of these things where like I've seen Honey through the years. I never thought it would be as big as it was, and then it got acquired for much more than I expected. So I was wrong, wrong every step of the way. Um, but, and my, my issue with it is like, I think of it from an ad perspective and what they're doing is like sniping and getting credit for referrals that they, that I believe they shouldn't be getting, but so you have it'll be interesting to see. You have a philosophical issue with the business. Like you it's just true. don't believe that somebody should be making money that way. I agree. Yeah. That's, that's, that's <laughs> my challenge with it, but certainly commerce and payments are converging and a lot of these like Janie said, like Square is a perfect example, but also like Shopify would be another example. Toast would be another where these commerce businesses are actually a lot of what is underpinning their success is, is payments. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future where every one of these companies that sells to SMBs or, or like sells to SMBs or like builds an SMB in a box type business. Like it could be a, your I'll call it your operating system. It could be like, if you're a barbershop, your operating system for your barbershop, or if you're a florist, your operating system, or like Mind Body Online, which works with the yoga studios, all of these companies will have fintech components in them. And I think they'll start with payments, they'll add in lending, they may end up having like banking services as well. Um, but it's totally converging. And, and that's exciting for me because like as a fintech investor, I've always I, I like some of these businesses quite a bit. And actually, like that extends what I invest in into some of these other sectors that at the outset may not look like a fintech company, but ultimately will be one. You know, it's interesting. I think we're, we're articulating the theme now about payments and commerce converging and we're doing it in a, you know, maybe we're doing it in a more sophisticated way, but I feel like companies like PayPal have always just done this. You know, when you yeah. think about their business model, they've always benefited from this flywheel effect between commerce and payments. You know, like yeah. PayPal monetizes merchants by processing their payments. But so PayPal is really incentivized to bring more consumers to those merchants and enable, you know, help convert those customers at the point of checkout, right? And make, you know, enable that commerce. I feel like this has been just a theme that's always kind of existed. And we now think about it in this, in this more sort of academic way, just because we're seeing so much m and happening. Uh, I don't know. I feel like commerce and payments have always just been interlinked. You know, but I think we're now totally. talking about it a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. What happens uh, around SMBs more generally, especially in a post uh, post COVID era? You know, I think unfortunately the SMBs have been hit pretty hard, particularly around some sectors, restaurants, barbershops, these kind of things. And unfortunately, a lot of them won't be coming back and will be permanently damaged. But you know, ultimately, will the economy will come back and people will hopefully mostly go back to their, their standard, what they were doing before. Although it is interesting how many of my friends now know how to make baked bread. So uh, <laughs> maybe the bakers are in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, 
I think, unfortunately, a lot of the startups serving SMBs, like they don't have time for that recovery. Like Mm. if you were a startup and, you know, you're a seed funded company, you earned, I don't know, $60,000 a month off of SMBs two months ago. Now it's 5,000. Then like raising that series A is going to be pretty tough. And so unfortunately, a lot of SMB focused companies are really going to struggle. But I think in the long run, you know, SMBs probably still some of them will suffer. But overall, like, it'll come back. It just, it's just a matter of time. How else does COVID or, or, or uh, affect uh, a fintech or maybe more precisely, like in a post-COVID world, what, what, what sort of sectors are now, you know, uh, hotter or less hot as a result? Like, is lending fucked for, for a bit? Like, how... <laughs> Yeah, lending has been fucked. So <laughs> Forever. For a long time. So I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't invested in any lenders since 2015. And... Like even like a firm, you wouldn't have done. No, a, a firm is a little bit different because of how they make money. Like they make money on the retailer side. It's a little bit different business. It's not a pure lender. Like so. So for those who don't know, a firm basically they do lend money to the end user, but they actually make a lot of their money by the retailer gives them a commission, and the retailer is incentivized to give them a commission because. If you were going to buy a thousand dollar mattress and instead you could buy a mattress for a hundred bucks a month and make 12 payments, then you're likely to up to buy a better mattress or even convert on the sale at all. So they make money by increasing conversions and increase in upselling products. So it's a little bit different than a traditional lender, but yeah, I've, I've avoided uh, the category primarily because I was like super worried about a downturn and what happens to a lender in a downturn. And that also, I was worried, I've been worried about a downturn for like several years, which, you know, led me to be long cash, which for the last five years, I've looked like really stupid. And now, only now am I even getting like close to, close to being right. I've been thinking a lot about like what changes post COVID. Uh, lending certain, a lot of these marketplace lending or alternative lenders will probably be in pretty dire straits. But I've also been thinking about like what consumer habits are going to change. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like omni-channel commerce is going to be like a way bigger thing and top of mind for a lot of retailers. Like for me, I'm probably a lot more likely to use my Apple Pay uh, and not, or not, just not use a credit card where I have to sign in the grocery store. You know, like use my chip card so I don't have to sign at all and not touch anything. I mean, when I think about like, what are some consumer habits that will change around fintech? Do you guys have any perspectives on that? No. I mean, I think like, yeah, consumer habits, like like what you said, branchless banking accelerates for yeah. sure. And then accelerating mobile digital payments, NFC adoption, people don't want to deal with cash. And maybe people won't even want to use their credit card. They'll just want to use NFC. So that's yeah. good. Um, in insurance, like we have... I have companies in life, auto, and home, and for each of them, March was their best month in history by a lot. And it's because people, when people are at home, they're they're like open to shopping for these things. The auto insurers has been amazing because nobody's driving either, so there's no accidents, so there's no claims. Mm-hmm. So it's been really, really good for them. So that'll be interesting. So auto insurers look really good at first, but I wonder if like 
people will decline their use of public transit and ride sharing with other people. So who knows? That could be interesting and disruptive to auto insurance in general. I think health insurance, we have a company that's an HSA company, Health Savings Account, and yeah. it's been pretty good for them because there's also been legislation changes. So yeah. a health savings account, for those of you who don't know, if you're eligible, you should you should absolutely sign up. It's basically a super tax advantage account that you can use for health. You can put up $3,500 a year into it pre-tax, and then you never pay taxes on it. Like you can invest the money and then, you know, it could grow to be a million dollars. You get it out tax-free when you retire, whatever. Like it's super, super great product. But HSAs, they also just expanded what you can use it for. And now like you can use it for feminine care, all, all these like over-the-counter products that you couldn't use it for before. So that's been really good. I think the robo-advisors and trading apps like Wealthfront Risk Parity Fund is getting hammered. I think Robinhood day traders may be getting crushed. I don't know. There'll be some margin calls that'll be difficult. Folks that rely on AUM, the AUM just got cut by 25%. So that might be tough. I think life insurance is an interesting one. Everybody's thinking about death. You're thinking like, okay, it, like, you know, none of, none of the three of us on this have, have kids, but like, if you have kids, you're like, shit, like, I didn't have life insurance, but like, this could take me out. Like, I yeah. saw somebody that was my age that like, died from this. Now I'm thinking about life insurance, and I wasn't before. So that's one that definitely is changing stuff. And then like, another topic I'm seeing is real estate, like, in the short run, all the companies selling real estate are screwed. Like there's no sale, no sales or not many sales are happening in the long run. It'll be interesting to see if like a lot more stuff gets done online, more virtual tours, less like paper-based leasing, all that kind of stuff. People still want to sell homes right now, but broke, like there aren't open houses. Brokers aren't doing showings. So like, will this be an acceleration to virtual tours and will people buy houses without seeing them? I don't know. It's possible. I mean, people are dating people without actually meeting them in person now. So, you know, there's a lot crazy of things happening as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been going on lots of video dates and I've, it's, it's enjoyable, but then like, there's a question <laughs> around like what the next step is, you know, like there's a clear next step if you're meeting in, in real life. So what I've been doing is like doing social distance walks as like, I was going to say, yeah, that is like a good a, next step. Six yeah. feet distance. You, you, you mentioned that you've been predicting this for a while, not coronavirus specifically, but this no. sort of downturn. Why and how? Or say more about that. Not, not predicting per se. I, I was just, you know, thinking like the world moves in cycles and like, you know, the other two that, that I've been an adult for were like 2001 and then 2008. And those happened, you know, in relatively shorter amount of time. And then kind of, I was like, okay, like once it's been seven or eight years, like something is going to happen and the markets are going to get shaken up. Something's going to happen. Had no idea it would be a pandemic, of course, but, but I've just been worried about something happening to the credit markets in particular. Because things have been good for so long. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about my life in general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Janie, what are you seeing from a from like new companies you're looking at? Are you seeing like one of the things that I've been wanting to see but haven't seen enough of yet is like the public markets have dropped, 
and like later stage deal volume has dropped and like deals are, are having a hard time getting done. Valuations have been cut. At the seed stage where I'm playing right now, I'm not seeing entrepreneurs be realistic about their expectations from a pricing perspective. What are you, what are you guys seeing, Eric and Jamie? Yeah, that, I, you know, it's interesting. I think it's definitely a mixed bag. I think that some entrepreneurs I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks who are very realistic about what's going on and they sort of understand that, you know, they understand how venture works and sort of what VC's incentives are and they understand that people are looking to, you know, uh, concentrate ownership even as a seed stage investor uh, and and frankly they have a good sort of pulse on what's happening in sort of later stage land it's interesting that you're meeting so many people who who have unrealistic expectations around valuation um, you know it certainly feels like within some circles that valuations are down 30 30 to 40 percent like I would say that range, I'm, I, I'm, I'm suddenly hearing more and more about it now. Yeah, it suddenly feels like uh, the, the range is already kind of moving, uh, you know, is already moving downwards. You know, I think it's all anecdotal though, right? I feel like there's just yeah. not enough deals getting done that you can extrapolate on a, you know, you have a bigger sample set. I feel like it's still very, very anecdotal. And I think a lot of VCs are still kind of in the process of wrapping up processes that began pre-COVID, you know, people they met yeah. pre-pandemic where totally. you, the expectations are just still a little bit different. And then you feel this need to like honor the, the pricing or ranges you threw out back then, you know, it's hard to then go back on your word. And so, I, you know, I feel like there's going to be a, you know, as these processes wrap up and a whole new set of conversations start only on Zoom, only on the phone, I think you're going to start to see a shift, but I feel like the information is more anecdotal thus far. Yeah. Could you do a deal like that? You'd never met the person. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, we are by coastal fund with, with two offices. And so that there's oftentimes where I haven't met a team in person, if it's an East coast based team before accomplice invest and you know, vice versa for the East coast team for founders based out here. I just don't know how comfortable I would personally be to invest in someone I'd never sat down with. You know, I think Zoom just doesn't do full justice. On a person, if I were championing a deal myself, I just don't think I am comfortable writing a check into somebody I've never actually met. How, how do you yeah. feel about it, both of you? I mean, Eric and I have done it before, <laughs> so. What? You've already done a deal? Uh, we, we've, we've done a deal where we uh, have not met the founder in person because maybe they were in a different part of the world. I think that still seeing some founders in crazy town, you know, 15, 20, like the Y didn't really hit the last YC class. They didn't get the memo, uh, seeing, and, but seeing some of them ra- end up raising it, seeing some of them, you know, not end up raising it. And I think that we're seeing a lot of companies that rate that were like really hot rounds a few months ago, come back out and say, we're doing an extension or something. Yeah. Uh, and in some sense, it's exciting in some sense you know, because it's at the same terms or maybe just a little bit higher than, than, than it was and maybe they have some real traction. So yeah, I, I, I tweet about it basically. Like if there's a, a company that you want, really wanted to get into in the last six to 12 months and you weren't yeah. able to, now is a good time to check in with them. Yeah. But yeah, so that, that's that's one dynamic I'm seeing. Yeah, I, I think this inside us round is definitely a phenomenon in the last couple of weeks. There's a ton of inside rounds happening and then there's a ton of inside rounds happening where 
insiders would bring in like a friend of the firm or somebody the founder is comfortable with they've met before it's a familiar entity they couldn't do couldn't get into the last round for some reason and especially yeah. in situations where the insiders can't carry the ship or you know they can't bear the burden just by themselves and they need another partner at the table um i also think it's uh, we're going to start seeing more you know strategic partners playing a role like you know a lot of founders don't really want to take strategic money especially very early stage and to ways able to get into some of the best stuff and i think we might start seeing founders turn to clients distribution partners or whatever you know especially those who have the ability to invest i'm hearing about a few of those cases already i think that's going to become a lot more common in the coming months yeah interesting i i, I is there any advice you're giving founders in your portfolio any specific tactical advice these days i'm just curious how other funds are approaching all the portfolio triage work i think it really depends company to company fortunately i have a couple of companies that had to make cuts but there it's just like do it as soon as possible and do to the full extent because like mm. doing multiple rounds of cuts is brutal don't don't ever do that just do it once and do it deep and then i have other companies that are like in another position which are like sitting pretty and you know just completed a big raise and have the ability to tell their team like they're telling these their team not in this many words not in these words but they're basically like look there's a lot of great talent out there now salaries are down like you better mm-hmm. better step up your game not in those words at all but like kind of that that's the message that's going out there so there's something around that and then we have uh, some companies that are looking to do acquisitions now because a lot of companies won't be able to raise so yeah. helping them think through which companies can get acquired and all that kind of stuff so it's been it's been interesting all sorts of challenges like it, it's also interesting like i don't know what the right answer is right mm-hmm. like but as a vc like your company's company for advice so i'm just basically like reading and asking other people <laughs> who've been through this before what to do and then like relaying that back to my entrepreneurs yeah i mean i i think if there's one sort of bright line uh silver lining to any of this is that you know this is an opportunity for some creativity because i'm sure there's going to be things that come that emerge out of this whether it's any opportunities or the ability to partner with certain companies that weren't open to doing that before you know i think everyone is just rethinking their businesses fundamentally um what we're telling our companies is And, and, and you know in speaking to other sort of more experienced investors and people who've been through the past cycles i think just the bar is just higher than ever and you know companies need to understand and, and sort of have a plan for getting you know eventually cash flow break even based on the limited money that they're going to be able to raise in the coming coming months or even in the next couple of years it, it is going to be hard to get a new investor on the table right now and so I think it's really imperative that founders understand capital efficiency and sort of have a really strong grasp on the unit economics right now. Just go back to basics and you know not just the growth at all cost model but really think about the unit economics of the business and what those drivers are and how they can optimize how they can optimize that, you know. Cost of capital really has just gotten high on it. You know, it's when you think about it like capital is such a critical input into your business. it's just it has gotten it and it will continue to get more and more expensive to raise right like you so i think people have to start making some thoughtful strategic decisions around how much dilution they're willing to take 
uh, for the same amount of capital because the market is just fundamentally different now. Yeah. My guests today have been Janie Shah of Accomplice and Shiel Manat of Better Tomorrow. Uh, Shiel, Janie, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.